0: And so we're going to extract the scriptural text for today. Once you find it, I'll ask if you'll stand one more time in the honor of the reading of scripture today in the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke and then the 21st chapter today. This is a familiar passage in the seventh chapter because I've alluded to it most recently and I will bring clarification to it in just a few moments. I certainly value the privilege that the Lord gives me to both read audibly the Scriptures and also to speak and to exhort from the Scriptures today. I don't take it for granted. I thank God that you give me this privilege and opportunity. So let's read together today. It says, The Lord said, Whereinto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? Now remember, this is Jesus' own words. And the Lord said, is how the text begins. They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, We have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned to you, and you have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He hath the devil. The Son of Man is come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of all her children. And then we'll bring some clarification to that in a moment. The 21st chapter of the Gospel of Luke finds us in the familiar, once again, a familiar passage titled the Olivet Discourse or it's what it's labeled by most theologians and we'll reference and bring clarity to you in a moment. Now I know many of you are familiar with some of these passages and I'm going to be drawing them to a little bit different conclusion today. Here in the 29th verse the end of this discourse this is recorded as well in the 24th chapter of Matthew, the 13th chapter of Mark Luke writes it uh, with a little bit uh, less detail. We're going to just look verses 29 through 36 briefly as he concludes this discourse. And he spoke unto them a parable Behold, the fig tree and all the trees, when they now shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So, likewise, when you see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say unto you, notice this 32nd verse, I think it's really important. This generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And so, and take heed to yourselves. And this is Jesus warning his listening audience of the first century. Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting, or in essence overeating, and drunkenness. So it would be in gluttony, and a gluttonous lifestyle, and drunkenness. And the cares of this life, so that that day would come upon you unaware. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore, and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man." From these two texts of Scripture, and I'm going to try to weave a couple of common thoughts together, I've already announced a context that I would share from today, and this is what came to my mind, and I want you to just kind of begin to wrap your mind around it with me. It's surviving a generational and a cultural shift. I do believe one of the roles that the church must play, and that is to prepare the church, prepare, pastors must play this role, certainly, as leaders of the church, preparing the church sometimes for unseen things, things that may be yet in the horizon that we, you know, Noah was warned of things unseen as of yet. And and so, Jesus himself said, he kind of reproved his generation. He said because, he said, you can look at the sky in the evening time and you can say, you know, tomorrow it's going to be clear or tomorrow it's going to be cloudy, but you can't discern the season of life that you're in, something that was about to happen. So let's just put our minds together and see if we can develop this thought, surviving a generational and a cultural shift. See if the Lord can add some understanding to that. Father, I love you. I'm so privileged to have the opportunity to speak to our church family. And God, you know, the, Father, the, the, the struggle within within my own heart to convey truth at this level. God, but I cast myself upon the mercy of God. I cast myself upon the willingness of your Holy Spirit to anoint me as a vessel today that can be used to convey truth. Lord, I pray, open our eyes, open our ears. May we heed the words of Jesus to watch, to be sober, to be vigilant today, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen. Thank you for your reverence to the word of God. You can be seated. I'd like to take just a couple of moments, if I can. I know we're a little bit past the time that I normally begin preaching. And so I don't want that to hinder me and nor hinder you, hinder me in sharing you and receiving. God's given us just a little sliver of time to come together and how we should value it and appreciate it. So for just a moment, if I can go back for the last couple of weeks where I began a series that I'm hastening towards um, Easter, just to look closer at the ministry of jesus and i couldn 't look at the Ministry of Jesus first without beginning with John, and I had an ulterior motive as I was studying both of these two men. I wanted to see if if it were possible to i use this word to transpose to take from their culture, their generation, their ministry, what they did, what they said, and somehow put it in our culture to see how it would be, how would they function. I began with a sermon entitled In the Spirit of John trying to look at that powerful, penetrating ministry of John the Baptist who came as a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And looking how that he in his bold confrontational ministry, he even addressed the cultural and the political issues of his day. And I pose the question, would John have the courage to confront some of the cultural and political issues of our day? And I suppose that he would. You have to make up your own decision. Following this, last week I extended then into Jesus' ministry, highlighting one of the unique aspects of some of his teaching. I shared the context of a narrow-minded preacher and a narrow-minded church because I drew from that passage of Scripture where Jesus said, Enter in at the straight gate. Straight is the gate. Narrow is the way that leads to life broad is the way, wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Few find this way, many go the other direction. Jesus himself, even some of his teaching could be labeled narrow-minded. If our culture today was taking some of his teachings, because he said this in John's gospel, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, he didn't say that at a time when there weren't other religions. There were many other known religions But Jesus put himself in contrast to those other religions and said the thief tries to come up other way. He said, I came in by the door, by humanity. I'm the door to the sheepfold. If you're going to get to the Father, you've got to come through me. So I believe in a culture today when we're finding additional pressure... Now, we certainly should respect other religions, absolutely. But at the same time, we have to lift up our voice to declare what we believe to be His truth. And this truth is non-negotiable. I'm not going to put myself in any agreement that there is any other way of accessibility to the Father. Because if I believed anything else, then that would make Jesus a liar, and then if he's a liar, as the scripture says, we've not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you his, his majesty, but he said we were eyewitnesses to these things. Our hands have handled of the word of life, John would write in his epistle. Our belief is that Jesus is the way, the truth, unto the Father. He's the only accessibility, and it may be called narrow-minded by our culture today, but if you don't have Jesus, then you don't have life. And so let's go a little bit further. Jesus, I want to contemplate the thought of Jesus and compare for briefly Jesus' ministry. Did you know when John came, he came preaching a bold message of repentance? Did you know when Jesus came preaching, he preached a bold message of repentance? Matter of fact, I believe it's Luke that records at the beginning of his gospel that Jesus came saying the same words, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus' ministry was comparative to John's ministry in that they both preached repentance. But Jesus' ministry surpassed that of John in his compassion for the lost, the hurting, the broken, the sick, and the, those who were wounded. His ministry, we see him as we read the scriptures. I believe he truly is the good shepherd that gave his life for the sheep. He was moved by compassion. He saw people's needs and he responded to those needs. He he felt the aching cries that men and women, the Bible says it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. He was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin so he could teach us a model of how to overcome temptation and trials in this particular life. So what I want you to know today for just a moment, when there's an image in your mind that you have of Jesus, I believe that you need to have an image of Jesus that reveals his love for the father he had a passionate love for his father Matter of fact, if you ever tried to praise him, he always deferred that praise to the Father. One man ran up to him and called him, "Good Master," and you and I would do the same thing if he were here. We would say, "Good master," he would say, "Call me not good, there's only good one that's good, and that is the father God He, he always deferred he was so he said, "My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work." He had an aching desire in his heart to please the Father to fulfill the father's will, and I want you to have that image in your mind i want you to have the image in your mind of one who loves people with all of his heart that christ loves men and women for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son god loves us through the person of jesus christ i want you to have in your mind his willingness to forgive sin because i don't believe there's a sin you have committed that christ's blood is not sufficient to free you from and the condemnation that is often associated with that sin not just the guilt of the sin not just the sin indebtedness that is created but the condemnation that thereby follows the fact that you've sinned against God and man I believe that in him that's what we sing about a while ago in him there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus come on somebody and so I want you to have that image the woman that was caught in adultery Jesus said go he said has any man condemned? Do you remember that? When he said to those, if, there's, if you've got sin in your life, if you don't have sin, you can cast the stone. And he said uh, that they all left and he said, well woman I, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. I want you to have that image. Don't you think that's an appropriate image of Jesus? I want you to have an image of him walking on the water breaking bread and feeding the 5,000. I want you to have an image in your mind of him speaking to the wind and the wind obeying him. I want you to have an image in your mind of him speaking to sickness and the sickness obeying him. I want you to have an image in your mind of cripples that he reached down and touched and they were marvelously healed and leaped up off of mats and began to run and shout like what was happening in this church a while ago. I want you to have images of him standing outside of the burial chambers of Bethany crying out at his dear friend and Lazarus four days dead. Lazarus come forth and he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with the grave cloth. I want you to hear his words when he said loose him and let him go. I want you to have your mind in just filled with the power and the potential that he carried. Don't let go of those because that's who he is. Glory to God. That's the Jesus that you and I. And he's the same yesterday today and forever. And we are a fellowship that believes in His continual miraculous presence in the church. We believe this. Amen. So I want you to never forget that side of Jesus, but I want you to be willing to look closer at His life and His teaching because as you do so, you will see other characteristics, attributes that you will see, that some of which may even surprise you because, you know, as willing as He was to heal the sick, and as compassionate as he was towards people's uh, sicknesses, occasionally he had a moment of frustration. So many people pressing him. All, have you ever had that moment? I'm sure he's alone. He's the no one. He had that moment with so many people pressing upon him. And at one time he even said this when someone said, I need you to heal my son. He said, oh, faithless. I can see him just kind of... I've showed exasperation. Have you ever showed exasperation? I'm preaching to some really sanctified folk today. I can see that already. And so I've had those moments. I, I, I've seen others, even in ministry, we've had those. And Jesus said, oh, faithless generation, how long must I suffer you I've seen his uh, willingness, uh, again, to occasionally reprove the Roman government. Remember I referenced last week that he told Herod, Herod Antipas, who had married, you know, again, perhaps a legal marriage, but it was not a lawful marriage. His brother Philip's wife, he, spe- he kind of said to him, he said, you tell that fox. It was a disparagingly ter- uh, used term. He used it, it was, uh, 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 in, a, in a way that you might find offensive, but it didn't seem to bother Jesus. He, he was frustrated by the Roman government government. But one thing I do note is that he refused to lead a rebellion to claim the lost throne of David. He would not allow the people to make him an earthly king. Matter of fact, when they came to try to take him and put him on a horse so that he could storm the gates of Jerusalem and reclaim the city of Jerusalem for Zionism, he would depart into a lonely place and there pray. He would not allow himself, even to the final breath, he even told Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight, but my kingdom is a... How many of you know this kingdom in that context was not of this world, but there will come a day there will come a day when King Jesus will come to claim his throne. Come on, somebody. But in that moment, he did not. He deferred it to another dispensation. And so, uh, but, but I, even though he refused to lead a rebellion, he often reproved the religious and political leaders of Israel. You have to see Jesus' willingness to confront hypocrisy. I'm telling you, nothing frustrated him more than hypocrisy. People that ought to know better, Come on, people that have the truth, they have the law, they have the understanding, they have the prophets, they have the Psalms, and they have turned it into traditions that that, that hindered the word of God. He was consistent in his reproof of their hypocrisy. Actually, do you know what caused Jesus to be handed over to the Roman government and ultimately be crucified? It was his last scathing reproof and rebuke of 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 the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in the 23rd chapter of the book of Matthew, the final week of his death, you know how he addressed them? The same words that John addressed them with. He said, oh, you generation of vipers. He said, you are like a whited sepulcher. On the outside, you are beautifully adorned, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. And those hard words penetrated so harshly and it so made them so angry that they ultimately handed him over for crucifixion. He reproved even his closest followers. Yes, Christ will reprove you. He will correct you. Did you know why people struggle with correction in our generation? Because we're a fatherless generation. Come on. And so if if you've been raised without that follow the influence in your life, then when somebody or even the scriptures goes about to correct you, then you shun it. The Bible says that if you're not correctable, then you don't belong to him. Bible even uses a strong word. I won't repeat under the sound of, you know, in in this room right here today, King James English will translate it and say it's illegitimate if you can't handle reproof. So God was willing, Christ was willing. He he willingly reproved his disciples for lack of faith. He got in their business and their lack of understanding of the scriptures and you know there was one side of Jesus that nobody had ever seen till the right there at the end, and that was his love for the Father's house. He came to worship in the in the temple and it was nothing but confusion and they were making merchandise of the, of the house of God and he had had enough and he came in and he took a whip and he went through the temple just driving out the animals turning over the money changers tables freeing the doves and loosing the sheep and he said don't make my father's house a house of merchandise does anybody remember that that was a side I tell you you need to see that side of Jesus you don't need to just see him docile and you need to see him uh you know just so soft you need to see that there's a side of him that's fervent there's a side of him that gets frustrated there's a side of him that will address the issues of his age and the issues of our life i think it's very important that we see that side of jesus there are two things that i want you to see about jesus today that he did and i want to attempt to relate to it number one he reproved the stubbornness of his generation good preaching in here already, and y'all are right there with me. Number two, he warned the people. Now listen to this, and this is the one that I'm going to really bear down on in conclusion today. He warned the people of his generation of something cataclysmic something that was yet in the horizon, something that was not quite near but wasn't that far away, and he taught them how to be prepared for it. It would change their way of life as they know it, and we need to consider that today. Number one, and this two points that I want to address quickly today. Jesus addressed the people in Luke 7. He addressed the people's response to the ministry of John the Baptist. That's the passage of Scripture where prior to it, what we had read, ...as Jesus affirmed the ministry of John. Up until that point, John had affirmed the ministry of Jesus. He was the forerunner of the coming of Christ. At that point, John's in prison. He's heard about Jesus teaching healing ministry. He himself is doubting and he sent disciples to ask, ...are you the one that should come or we look for another? Jesus healed many of their sicknesses in that moment. He said, go back and tell John the things that you have seen. The sick are healed, the blind see, the lame leap for the glory of God. The dead are raised and blessed is he who is not offended in me." He went on to say, "What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Did you go out to see, you know, a man clothed in soft raiment?" He said, "Men that are clothed in soft raiment live in kings' houses." But if you went out to see a prophet, there's not been anybody born of women that's greater than prophet than John the Baptist. So Jesus affirmed him. But then Jesus took an opportunity to address the stubbornness of his generation because some were baptized by the baptism of John, and so they they they, they believed and they supported what Jesus said. But others had rejected John and they were now rejecting Jesus and in the passage that we read in John 7 Jesus is addressing their stubbornness because he said this he said what can we do to reach you That's in essence what he said. He just kind of threw all this frustration and he said, what can we do to reach you? He said, because you're like children in the marketplace. And he said, we made everything festive and we made everything exciting and we pumped it up and we did everything we could that would reach out and you said you'd sit there and you would refuse to dance. So he said, okay, so we shifted and we made it like a funeral and we played a, a, a funeral dirge. He said, but you refuse to mourn. And then he said this, he said, John came, look at this, he said, John came and he said he was, lived an isolated life, he didn't eat or drink, he didn't do any of those things, and you said he had a devil. So he said, so then I come along, and, you, and he said, and I eat and drink, and now you call me a gluttonous man, a winebibber, and a friend of sinners. Which is it, is what he was saying. What do you want, the stubbornness of his generation? How can I reach you? There's a couple of things I'd like to just note today. The American culture today wants Christianity that's conformable to their non-biblical views. I'm just being honest with you. They want to redefine Christianity not through a strict interpretation of the Scriptures, but rather Christianity that reflects the whims and the desires of the ever-changing culture. See, I don't know if it's stubbornness or fickleness, but I know it's not right. Right? Come on, and I've said this many years now. This is not Burger King. You cannot have it your way. We have to be conformable to the will of God. We have to lay down our affections, our desires, our presumptions, everything. When you come to Christ, you need to wipe the eraser board clean so that he can write upon you your ideology, your theology, who you are, what he wants you to do, and who he wants you to be. We have to come to him willing for him to shape us and mold us. I've discovered by pastoring now 19 years, I've discovered that these attitudes often even carry over in the church. Here's what we want. We want a bold and and an authoritative pastor until his theology or ideology disagrees with our own personal theology. They said it this way, now he's gone from preaching to meddling. It was good when you were right there and I was right there in your vein, but when it may have shifted some, then we have the tendency to just kind of tune us out. It's amazing. I know people can just tune me out right here while I'm preaching. Y'all are just going through the motion, nodding, not hearing a word what I'm saying. See, because I've been speaking out to you concerning even cultural issues. I don't do this all the time. I don't make that every time you come to church about political issues. But I remember this. Several years ago, I sat with Brother Larry Moore, the district superintendent of the Assemblies of God in the state of Arkansas. And he said, pastors, he said, sometimes, and he said, pardon the the expression, sometimes you're darned if you do and darned if you don't. See, because when I do, I gain the affirmation and approval of some. Yeah. And I gain the offense of others. See, some people want preaching to always have reproof, correction, even an edge of frustration. Even an edge of frustration. But others only want preaching to be soft and warm and inviting. So preach, pastor. Here's the thoughts in many of our minds. Preach, pastor as long as you don't speak against my personal views or lifestyle. Listen, we can be just as stubborn in the church as they can be in the world. As a pastor, in the context of political, cultural issues, here's the question. Should I occasionally speak out, raising awareness and confronting issues that I believe to be more biblical than political? Uh Uh-oh and in doing so risk offending the views of some in the church? Or should I remain silent and allow the distorted media and an exceedingly wicked culture to be the only voice of influence in your life? Which would be more wrong or which would be more right? Risk offending or remain silent? There are some churches I can't speak for them. There are some pastors that they will not risk offending others. I can't be that person. There are too many things that are happening in the culture around us that I believe that there are occasional moments in your life that you have to be willing to just simply take a stand. Just that's all it is. It may not be that you've got to pick it out in front of anybody's building. It may not be that you've got to pass out you know placards and billboards and any such thing, but every now and then you just got to lift up your voice and reaffirm some, uh, some biblical principles that you believe in deeply and if a pastor lacks the fortitude to do those things then I don't believe that he's really a- answering the call of God fully in his life because God didn't intend for us to always pat everybody on the back and tell everybody everything was good and right when it's not so let me say this again I know it feels like 11 o'clock to you and we're already close to noon, but let me say this. Jesus seldom rebuked the Roman government, but he constantly reproved the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious and political leaders and the men of his generation. So recently, I go back and I listen to every one of my sermons for the very purposes of, of, of judging myself. I want to make sure it's easy when you get fervent about something that you can step over the edge. It's easy that you can go from preaching by inspiration and preach by frustration. I tempered myself years ago. I remember long years ago pastoring in Shirley, trying to work out something in my mind and my heart before God, and I was frustrated, and I was seeking God, and I was trying to get that sermon, and that sermon would be born of frustration. And the Lord said, Lee, don't preach by frustration, but preach by inspiration. So I go to God in prayer, and I say, God, I may be frustrated in certain areas. Things can frustrate me, but when I hit this pulpit, God, I'm not there to do harm to the body of Christ. I'm there to strengthen. But sometimes to strengthen, you have to reprove, you have to correct, and then you give instruction. And then the man or the woman of God is perfect, thoroughly furnished to all good works. My God, that's a good word right there in the name of Jesus. So let me say this. I went back to reassess some of my viewpoints and the statements that I occasionally make in this church, and I want to go ahead and bring them forward briefly before I transition to my most important part that I'm going to deal with in conclusion today. And by sermon, readdress the convictions that are held by many in this church and many renowned evangelical leaders in our nation. These views that I shared are not hid, held by just an old hillbilly preacher like Lee Brown. These are held by men like Franklin Graham. They're held by men like John Hagee, Pat Robertson, people that have become a voice to the consciousness of the United States of America. I made this statement, the Democratic Party's support for abortion and gay rights should be the stimulus for deciding your political affiliation. And I stand by that statement again today. I know there are many other differences, and I often refer to those other issues as honorable debates. But I do not, and I will never be able to see how a genuinely born-again believer can support the platform that supports those two issues. I can't do it. I'm just being honest with you today. And so I'm just being honest today... That just like John spoke out occasionally, just like Jesus, if you are a part of this church, you're going to hear me occasionally speak out against it in the name of the Lord. When one claims they support the democratic platform, yet they don't support abortion or gay marriage, I believe that's stubborn foolishness because it's a package deal. Read, the, 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 read their platform. It's a package deal. You can't support the candidate without support the platform. You can't say, I support Pastor Brown, but I don't uh, support the assemblies of God. It's one, the thing. it's one and the same. Because those members that came forward a while ago, we had to sit down together and they said, yeah, you know, I affirm those beliefs of the assemblies of God. I believe in Pastor Brown, but I believe in those beliefs as well. So that's just simply an analogy. And so you say, well, what you're doing, Pastor Brown, you're simply confirming the doctrine that Jesus taught. Sometimes people are so predetermined, it doesn't matter what you say doesn't matter at all if I show you by the word of God. If I teach, you say, well, pastor, play the festive music. I'm not going to dance. Play the funeral dirge. I'm not going to weep. It doesn't matter. You're not going to move me. So I just want to press on today, I suppose, but I just want you to know right here at First Assembly, I still believe that God intends for the church and the pastor to speak a word to address some of the cultural and political issues of our generation. I believe that. Would Jesus address these issues? I believe he would. I believe he would. He wouldn't be hit in a corner. Number two, perhaps the most important for today, though. Let's real quickly go to Luke 21. I'm going to close with this. I just, sometimes you just have to say that to get things off your chest, and I did, so I feel good. Just being honest with you today. But stay with me for a moment. Don't, don't disconnect. This is this is very important what I'm about to tell you for the next few minutes. I want you to hear this today. And I know it's it's hot in here. I told Shane to turned the air on, but it didn't seem to work. And so the most overlooked truth of this Olivet. Let me talk to you about the Olivet discourse for a moment, because God wants to speak something to you today. This is very important. So please hear this today. Real quickly, please hear this. The Olivet, let me tell you what what we call the Olivet Discourse. This is the final week of Jesus' life. They've been in the temple. They're leaving the temple. And as they're leaving the temple, some of his disciples look at the beautiful stones. These stones were massive in nature. Our little wall here reminds me of them. We had the privilege of seeing them. Joe and Shane and I did. And they're much, much larger. Herod had hewn them out, hewn stones. And, And as they're walking out, one of the disciples said, look at those stones. Look at those goodly stones. They're so beautiful. And Jesus said, just kind of casually, said "This won't be long before every stone's been turned over. And I'm telling you, that just rocked their world. That because this was the center of their religious and their political activity, the temple in Jerusalem. So they crossed the valley, they went to the far side on the Mount of Olives, and they began to ask Jesus about that about that statement. He addressed it in what's called the Olivet Discourse. I won't go into it, but in that text, Jesus warned and told them that it would not be long before certain signs would unfold in front of them that would be precursory signs towards the greater calamity that was yet to come that would culminate with the temple being torn down and the people dispersed. And that just messed their theology all the way up. Now, listen, here's what's happened in the Western church. Most people in the Western church read the Olivet Discourse and they only see it as signs in front of the second advent or the return of Jesus back to the earth. And they often overlook the most revealing aspect of the text. Listen to this. This is the most revealing aspect of the entire Olivet Discourse that Jesus Christ accurately foretold that something cataclysmic was coming to his culture. To to his people something that would happen within that one generation less than 40 years from the time he made that statement everything or 40 years everything would change the way of life that they had known previously would suddenly be disrupted and it would it would happen exactly as he foretold see judaism was dying and jesus's death on the cross would declare it is finished the book of Hebrews said that it was fading away. And so Jesus warned his followers and his countrymen. And he said, when you see these things, we read it there in the text at the end. He said, when you see these things begin to come to pass, know that it is not. Know that this generation will not pass away until this is about to happen. The signs, listen to this, let me just borrow from that then. For a moment of time, Jesus accurately predicted something cataclysmic that would shift the culture, the entire culture of the people of ancient Israel. And he warned his followers and his fellow countrymen. Let me talk to you today about the culture in which you live today and what signs we're all witnessing. We are living in a a generation where we are seeing the signs of a generational and a cultural shift all around us. I mean a cultural shift. What do you mean by that, Pastor Brown? A cultural shift is a modification of an existing society's culture when it is penetrated by other societies bringing their culture. So the previous culture gives way to the new culture. Stay with me for just a moment. In America, in America what we are seeing is we're seeing a transition from a culture of biblical beliefs to a secular nation I'm just being honest with you today. Let's don't hide in these four walls and pretend it's not happening in the time frame in which we live. The reason why I called it a generational and a cultural is because it's happening in our generation right now. Right here, while we're in the four walls singing how good God is, He is good. I'm telling you, there's mayhem all around us. There's a dark underworld in America today. And so the principles that created this nation and were embraced by so many for so long are no longer valued by much of our culture. You know what we're seeing? We're seeing here's what we're seeing the effects of. It's not just one thing. It's a lot of little things. We're seeing the effects of unbridled lust. Unrestrained sexual activity. We're seeing the effects of pornography. The drug and alcohol addictions that are mounting so strongly in people's lives, and and the drug culture, and the, the things that are happening with the drug warlords of, of Mexico and the and the crystal meth push in in America today. We're seeing the effects of the abortion industry, the sexual revolution, the right of the gay and the lesbian movement, the militant movement. We're seeing the effects of corporate business corporations, corruption and political parties in both political parties, the effects of teaching evolution in our public schools and universities for the last 100 years. When we've set children down and tell them that they're not made in the image of God, you're not fearfully and wonderfully made, you're here by the random act of of, of an accident, an evolutionary accident. No wonder they go out and want to kill each other because they don't have the image of God embedded inside of them and the knowledge of God. We're seeing the effects of it lived out day by day by day. We're seeing the effects of unsustainable welfare in our culture today. We're seeing the effects of millions of illegal immigrants and the soon to be amnesty. We're seeing the of business greed. We're seeing outsourcing, going, jobs going overseas, the global economy. It's not just one thing, it's many things that's a part of the entire cultural shift. You know what we're seeing that's happened in the last six years and it's just the reality. And I'm, I have to be honest when I minister about it. We're seeing our president's love for and misguided affirmation of Islam. You know, who would have thought that the, uh, 50 years ago that that the 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 image of Islam would be on our stamp and that they would try to have a a Muslim worship service in the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., who would have ever thought? None of us would have ever contemplated that. But it's happening because a cultural shift is taking place. Our dependency upon foreign oil. Fiat currency, which is nothing more than I owe the federal treasury a $20 bill. That's, it's a promissory note. It has no value to it. It simply means you're in debt to the national treasury for that $20 is what it means. We're seeing those things in a national debt of over $18 trillion to foreign investors. So, it's not one thing, it's many things. And, Pastor, why are you saying this? Because listen, listen, a day of reckoning has to eventually occur. Something has to happen. See, you can't put so much pressure upon a nation's historical culture and economy without an eventual cataclysmic shift. It's, it's not possible, so it will eventually. Succumb to it. It's inevitable. You say, Pastor, what is it? I don't know what it will be. I don't know. Is it an economic meltdown? I don't know. Is it the is what do they call it? Islamization. I think that's a new word that they formed recently of America. Or do they want us all to bow towards Mecca five times a day? I don't know. Do they want to put uh, you know, cloths on our wives and make them walk five steps behind our husbands? I, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I, is it the end of a democratic republic? Is it the end of our American Christian heritage? I don't know what it is but all I know is that the signs are all around us That so much pressure is being put upon the historical culture of America that there's been a slow drift but there will come a day of a cataclysmic shift and you will look up and you will look around and you will say my God how did we arrive here today and you won't even recognize the country in which you now live. Jesus accurately warned both his disciples and his countrymen and history records the Christians survived Because they fled the city, the Jews did not. 800,000 perished in one day. Why am I ministering from this today, Darrell, join me. Because I think it speaks to us today about we need to be prepared as a church body. We can't play games like everything is all good and everything. You know, God will always protect America from these things. America is becoming just as evil as many of the other countries that we've often looked at In wonderment so you say, pastor what can i do what can we do i'm closing real quickly nuggets i'm going to drop them in your spirit today what can you and i do to survive i believe god wants the church to survive come on i do i believe he wants us to survive not only survive but thrive jesus said he said concerning the church he said upon this rock i'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it did you know cultures can pass away, but the church will endure? I believe that. Did you know the United States of America could pass into obscurity, historical obscurity, but the church, I believe, can endure because we are a nation of believers in Jesus' name. So let me say, let me drop these down in your spirit. We're going to close with these. Just open your heart. Let me put these in your heart and mind because you can, you can go home, and you can lay down, and you can put the pillow over your face, and you can pretend that this is not happening. Happening around you but it's not going to stop the reality that we are experiencing a cultural and a generational shift it's taking place and it's taking place in our generation and we as a church need to be aware of it and you say pastor what can I do to survive this shift number one you need to make your calling and election sure are you in the faith do you really know Jesus or are you playing games with God It's not time to play games with God. It's not time to look like a Christian. It's time to be a Christian. To have genuine, authentic faith in Jesus Christ. Number two, it's time to make up your mind you're going to follow God. I'm talking that old song said, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. You know they mocked Noah when Noah was building a boat in the middle of a plain without a cloud in the sky, but he saw something unseen as to other men. He saw something taking place and he knew he had to do his part. I'm telling you something I don't know what it is. I don't know what it's going to look like. He didn't know what the world would look like when the flood came. He just knew he had to build an ark. I don't know what I know I don't know what that's going to look like, but I know we can build an ark and we can endure. Come on, we can make a difference. Number three, got to know the Scriptures. Get the Word. I came by Jojo's office one day this week, and he had his face buried there in the Word of God, and I said, Jojo, what are you doing? He said, I'm hiding the Word in my heart. you got to hide the Word in your heart. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Number four, be sober, be vigilant, be awake, Be alert. Jesus said, what I say to everybody, or to you, I say to everybody, watch. Watch. Be ready. Be ready for the things that are going on. Number five today, this is just from me to you. I can't say that I say this by commandment like the Apostle Paul said. He said, I say some things by commandment. I say some things by experience. I think you ought to stay as debt-free as possible. Hallelujah! Come on, somebody. Don't so the Bible says, listen, that the, that the borrower is servant to the lender. We live in a culture that wants to, to put the bondage of debt around your neck and, and take the very life out of you. And I want to encourage you, stay as debt-free as possible, as much as you can. Stay as debt-free as you can. Number six, don't become dependent upon the government. I'm just telling you. Now listen, I know there are times you need available assistance. Sometimes it's there. That's fine. I'm not preaching against that. Just don't become dependent upon it because it can shift and it can shift quickly. Come on, somebody. Number seven, teach your children that philosophy. Don't raise up another generation of people dependent upon the government to do for you what you can do for yourself. Don't do it. Let's don't raise up another generation, a welfare generation. Let me challenge you in this. Find multiple ways to have income in your life. Not just one stream. Find ways. Come on now. Proverbs 31, woman, remember her, that virtuous woman? Remember her? She would sew on the side so she could, she could buy a field. She said her merchandise is good. Her candle would not go out by night. She looked for a while. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying today? I'm just telling you, I remember years ago T.D. Jake said these words. He said there are four rivers that fed the Garden of Eden and everybody needs to find another way. Don't just have one because that way when they outsource your job to China, you got another thing. Come on, somebody that's coming into your life. So start now. It's not going to find you. you got to find it. Come on now, I'm I believing God in my own life. This is my main river of income. Thank God for it. But you know what? I want to have another income, another source, something that can trickle into my life. I don't want to be dependent just upon one because this fickle generation might vote me out for preaching a little too hard one day. So i got to have a secondary plan lined up in the backdrop somewhere. Number nine... And I'm almost ready. I'm almost done. I'm sorry to keep you so long, but I'm just preaching what's on my heart. Number nine, study true American history, especially the beliefs of the original colonists and the founding fathers. I believe you'll find inspiration in their courage and their sacrifice. I believe then you will support politicians and political parties that more closely resemble those men and women in their beliefs. That's what I believe. And lastly today... Just from my heart to yours, don't take offense at a pastor who's attempting to prepare his congregation to survive the cultural and generational shift that will become a generational sift. I don't like to get up every day and address some things, but at the same time, I cannot stand before God and say, God, I just turned my back, closed my eyes, buried my head in the sand, pretended these things would pass us by. And we would just live life like we always knew. Not when there's so many things happening. The drift will eventually become a shift. It's going to shift. It's going to happen cataclysmic. Cataclysmic. And you're going to look up. And the way of life that you knew is going to be gone. And you're going to look around. You're going to say, I don't even know where I'm living. Don't even know what the, the culture, the people, the government, all those things. What are we going to be left? Are we going to just succumb or are we going to be left standing? I said stand. Mm -hmm. Why don't you stand up today? We're going to pray. In the name of Jesus.